All right, uh, this week uh, on our podcast, and welcome to Irreligiosophy, uh, we're going to do pagan precursors uh, of um, Christianity. Now, this is a podcast I've actually been waiting to do uh, ever since we started this thing. This subject to me is absolutely fascinating. Well, I mean, and it, it goes perfectly, especially with what we did last week concerning the uh, MNLE, I'm sure I'm saying that wrong, and the Epic of Gilgamesh. I need so, to I mean, get you a, a pronunciation guide to the universe. Uh, you're probably going to have to duct tape it to my forehead, uh, otherwise it's not going to do me any good. Enuma Elish and the Epic of Gilgamesh with Utnapishtim. Uh, I'm not even going to try to say Utnapishtim. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I've actually read a couple books on this subject. Leighton's done a bunch of research. So, uh, why don't you start, Leighton? All right, well, I mean, a lot of this week is going to be Charlie's and my theories concerning... Uh, the Christianity, the Judo-Christianity, the Jews, basically what they've taken, a lot of it from Egyptian mythology, because any of, anybody who studies Egypt will begin to realize how much has actually been taken from Egypt themselves and placed in modern religion and even uh, pre-religion way back when. But, uh, I mean, one of the things I've always noticed, uh, which I love in, in all religions, is it has a great bearing on the firstborn of anybody. I mean, you look at uh, Jesus, the firstborn of God. You look at uh, Osiris, somebody that we will get into very deeply. His firstborn was Babi, the god who devoured unworthy souls. And uh, it's, it's just very, very strange to me that you would have Osiris, which, as you'll find out later, much has been taken from him, and then you have his son, Babby, who deals with unworthy souls. And then you take that similarity, you cross it over with Jewish Christianity, Judeo-Christianity, and you have Jesus, who is supposed to be the judge in heaven when we all die and get up there in, in the end. Uh, Babby, huh? Now, I've heard of Horus, but I haven't heard of Babby. Uh, yeah, it's uh, one of the lesser-known gods. Uh God of the dead underneath Osiris. So he was, uh, he was the elder brother of Horus, I guess. It, well, you, as much as I do, know how twisted Egyptian uh, <laughs> gods get, where one god will take the shape of another god, so on and so forth. Actually, Horus did become uh, Osiris's firstborn son, but Babi was uh, a lesser-known god that was a firstborn son as well. How can they both be firstborn sons? Different mothers? Uh, well, you know, uh, if they both race to it, uh, I'm sure twins, maybe they both squoze out together. <laughs> it's kind of like Jacob and Esau. They're punching each other in the face, and uh, uh, finally Esau got out first, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, somebody's got to get out of there. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it just, it's just very fascinating to me that you would have, I mean, very bred into ancient civilizations the importance of the firstborn, and it makes perfect sense because the firstborn was the one that took over reigning over an entire kingdom or inheriting, things like that. So, I mean, it just, it's very interesting to me how this type of ongoing, uh, I guess, best way to put it is, uh, shit, I can't think of the best way to put it. <laughs> All right, so what you're talking about is uh, primogeniture, which is 
I think in the Middle Ages and, and in feudal societies, uh, actually even, even more ancient ones, the, the basic problem was if you have a whole lot of kids, which you have to try because a lot of them are going to die, uh, a lot of them won't make it to adulthood, they're going to die in childbirth, so you have to kind of have more kids than you think you're going to need. <laughs> so you have as many kids as possible. And if uh, you divide your assets up between all of your children, then... You're going to lose it. You're going to lose it, right. And they're, they're going to be diminished. So what the solution that they offered was the eldest-born, typically son, the eldest-born male, would get everything. And the rest of them are kind of on their own. <laughs> this led to... Well, you know, Oh, go ahead. This led to a lot of problems because you'd have, uh, say, nobility who would have younger sons who have no hope of going into anything. They'd either have to go into the clergy or go to war uh, because they didn't get any um, money or they'd get a small amount or they'd have to depend on their older brother's good graces who, if he gets killed, the estate falls down onto that guy. So, you know, there's all this animosity going back and forth. Uh, but that basically is what you're talking about as far as oldest son and inheritance. Yeah, exactly, and it, it, it's always fascinated me as to why this would be something that the gods would have to deal with. Because if a god is all-powerful, why exactly would he have to even worry about spreading out his kingdom? Well, not all these gods are all-powerful, you know. That's just the Christian deity, and he's not on the scene for a little while. Well, yeah, that, that much is very true. However, I mean, you have this same firstborn idea running through Christianity. I mean, Jesus is the firstborn of God. Well, he's, you have Satan. he's firstborn in Mormon theology. In normal Christendom, Lucifer and Jesus are not brothers. Only in Mormon theology are they brothers. That's a common uh, Protestant attack against Mormonism, that how dare you say that uh, Jesus and Satan are brothers? That's blasphemy. What normal... <laughs> I guess I shouldn't say normal. Mainstream Christians believe is that Jesus is the only begotten son. If you read Bart Ehrman, he will say that a better translation of that is uh, the unique son. Ah, okay. See, that makes sense. Uh, see, uh, that's one subject I've never actually even touched on on mainstream Christianity. Of course, it's something I always just assumed was... Uh, was out there and readily believed by everybody, but once again, that's just the uh, regimental type of religion that was beaten to my head. Right. I mean, it's the same thing as Adam God for me, right? I mean, you're, you're taught yeah. this from day one. It doesn't seem remotely uh, implausible or, or doctrinally problematic. It just is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, so that, that was something I wanted to bring up was just that this idea of the firstborn going through, and of course, uh, now I discover that this is just primarily attack on uh, the Mormon religion in and of itself. But uh, it's it's just very interesting to me how you would have this firstborn of Osiris, who, like I said, we'll get into into great depth, is the one who devours the unworthy souls. He is the judge. But I mean, that could conceivably be carried over to Christ in mainstream Christianity, as he is the unique son of God, and therefore he is also the judge of souls. Uh, right. Um, and actually, all throughout the Old Testament anyway, you have firstborn sons, and uh, typically those firstborn sons are set up to be in a position where you get a reversal. The, the Hebrews loved reversals. They loved uh, seeing these type scenes where a lady would come up to, you know, there'd, there'd be a lady at the well, and then someone would come up, and you expect that that's, they'd get to 
they'd meet each other, get together, and get married, right? And there are a bunch yeah. of these reversals in there. Um, Saul goes through, meets a bunch of women at the well, and it doesn't even cross his mind to get married to any of them. <laughs> it's like he's, you can almost see these guys laughing in the audience. This is read to them. He's totally clueless. Um, there are a bunch of other type scenes, but one of the type scenes is a strong firstborn son who gets inherited everything, uh, or the um, barren woman uh, who is yeah. uh, you know later gifted with with a child. Uh, so a lot of that Old Testament is reversing that um, normal type scene. It's, it's quite interesting. All right. Well, now that we've uh, covered the firstborn, I'd actually like to move into the sacrament. Now, everybody in Christianity loves the sacrament. This is like the most holy of holies, and I'm sure a lot of people are going get to get pissed off at us for even making light of this and comparing it with something as simple as a paganistic belief. But, I mean, if you look at this, this is actually something that was really well known throughout the ancient civilization. I mean, you have Plutarch from Greece who actually wrote about this. Now, his life was, uh, I what? believe... Are you, talking about, are you talking about Plutarch the Roman? Yeah. He was in Greece? Yeah. Uh, sorry, uh, I got my uh, my civilizations mixed up because Greece actually wrote about this too. <laughs> I'm getting to it. Hold on. Yeah, you know, that's why you're here is to slap me in the face. Why is go. it we're always jumping on each other? Plutarch wrote uh, Lives Of, right? Um, great Lives, and he, he compared uh, Greeks and Romans together. Uh, yeah. You know, he gave, like, biographies of these. And actually, uh, part of the reason we know so much about Alexander the Great is because Plutarch wrote a, a pretty lengthy chapter about him, and his source material, which is very common uh, in the day, got destroyed, I believe, at the fire at the Library of Alexandria. Yeah, which is just a sad, sad state of history right there. Anyway, to get on with it, uh, Plutarch was born, if I'm not mistaken, around 40 A.D., and he lived until 120 A.D., if I'm not mistaken, and one of the things he wrote was Isis and Osiris, uh, kind of a... Uh, a statement about that. And from there, uh, well, I guess we should explain who Osiris is. Now, Charlie and I, we'll, we're well-versed in a lot of Egyptian uh, mythology, history, such things as that. As well-versed uh, as, as interested amateurs can be. Exactly, exactly. So why don't you take the lead of who Osiris was and what happened to him? Right, Osiris is a pretty powerful god. You know, all these gods in Egypt, for whatever reason, came in threes. Um, so in this uh, trinity of Egypt was uh, Isis, Osiris, and Horus. And there was kind of a, a their, their nemesis was uh, Seth, which has been kind of uh, anglified into Set, I believe, the snake god. Yeah, that's but correct. That's not, um, that's not what it originally was, because I believe everything that ended with a T in Egypt was feminine. Isn't that right? So originally it was Seth with a T-H. Anyway, he hated his brother Osiris. His brother Osiris was very powerful. Um, Isis, his wife, was extremely powerful. She was probably the most powerful magically of, of any of the gods. Interesting that she'd be a female. But uh, what happened was that Seth invited him over for dinner because he hated his guts. Uh, under the pretense, I think, of you know making nice with him. And he said, you know, I uh, have this golden coffin here. <laughs> <laughs> These stories are awesome. I had this golden yeah. coffin, and uh, Egyptians were um, very uh, enthralled with kind of giving gifts to people they invited over for dinner. Cleopatra did the same thing with um, Caesar, Julius Caesar. Uh, they wanted to impress people, so they'd invite him over to dinner, and you know they'd make a comment like, "Wow, this is amazing uh, plates and jewelry, and it's amazing." Show. Oh, 
you think that's amazing. It's nothing to us. You can have it. So she gave all the gold, you know, to Julius Caesar. Anyway, uh, Seth says that um, I have this beautifully crafted uh, <laughs> golden coffin, and I will get give it to whoever uh, it best fits. And so all the dinner guests, one by one, got into the coffin, closed it, but no one fit. Well, you know, unbeknownst to uh, Osiris, he, uh, Seth had actually measured out his exact dimensions. <laughs> so he puts him in the coffin, seals it up, and I believe he um, set him out into uh, the river or something. Is that what happened? Yeah, I believe he buried him into the River Nile. Anyway, he ends up getting dismembered, so uh, he wouldn't come back to life. Because he knows how powerful Isis is. So Seth cuts him into all these pieces and scatters him around the world, where Isis goes and she finds every single piece except for except. one. <laughs> and what pray tell is that piece she could not find she cannot find his phallus I don't know what Seth was doing hanging on to his phallus or, or what he did with his phallus but she can't find it uh, well, so, there's only one place I can think of where he could hide it that Isis wouldn't find <laughs> even with all her magic hey you know that's a very dark place that doesn't see much sun <laughs> So she puts his pieces all together and casts this amazingly powerful spell and actually brings him back to life. Uh, this uh, Osiris is the god of, I believe, wheat. Yes. And so you can kind of see how this resurrection thing got started because you have these fields of wheat that in the wintertime kind of die and they're gone. They're completely gone. And then in the springtime, magically, they rise up again. And so uh, this is probably the Egyptians' attempt at explaining how uh, the wheat kind of dies and comes back. And so this god kind of died and come back, came back. Horus's son uh, was also involved in a, a massive battle against Seth, and I think aided by uh, Thoth, the god of wisdom, finally defeated him, but never, never actually killed him. And I believe Horus actually lost an eye in that great battle, which was restored actually, by Actually, he did. That's where the eye of Horus comes from. Right. It's that little amulet. Yeah. Right. Anyway, that's kind of in a nutshell the story of Isis, Osiris, and Horus, and as well as Seth. Exactly, and you actually hit on several points there that we're going to be covering. Uh, one dealing with Osiris being the god of grain or wheat, as well as his death and resurrection once a year. Now, this actually became a ceremony to the Egyptians, where every year on November 13th, if I'm not mistaken, they would have this very sad ceremony as they're going around and they're mourning the death of Osiris. And on that same day, they are planting grain for the next year. And uh, so it's, it's this very sad ceremony, which actually turns into this happy ceremony at the end. But from that ceremony, there's, there's actually something I want to read. And then I'm going to read something from the Bible and we can compare how closely they relate. Uh, this is coming from uh, kind of Plutarch's assessment of things. Plutarch the, the death, Yes, Plutarch the Roman. <laughs> <laughs> Shut the hell up. <laughs> All right. It says, The death of the grain and the death of the god were one and the same. The cereal was identified with the god who came from heaven. He was the bread by which man lives. The resurrection of the gods symbolized the rebirth of the grain. Now I'd like to read you. John 6:35 
And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes on me shall never thirst. Now that seems very similar to me, and we've just barely gotten started. Well, that's very interesting. I've never heard those uh, uh, compared side by side like that. Um, it, well, it's if you actually look at the Osiris myth as well as the Osiris sacrament, because there was a sacrament, it is almost word for word exactly what Jesus taught. And, uh, I mean, it just goes on and on from there. I mean, uh, also from, uh, from John uh, chapter 6, verse 48, it says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give him is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So, I mean, right here you have Osiris who did have a sacrament where, I mean, he was the god of wheat. Therefore, or God of grain, excuse me. Therefore, every bread that was made, people were eating of the flesh of Osiris. Every beer or wine that was created, they were drinking of the blood of Osiris. Again, it's very interesting because clearly, not only did it predate Christianity in time, but it actually, for the first time, makes sense of the sacrament. When they exactly. are eating bread, they are actually eating of the flesh. I mean, it that's his flesh. He was the god of grain. Uh, when they're drinking uh, his his beer, it was beer, it wasn't wine, right? Like yeah, the Christians. Um, they're actually drinking his blood. That For the first time, it makes sense. I always wondered as a kid, that is so gruesome. It's so grisly that we're actually eating like flesh and blood. And I, I kind of thought, well, maybe you could Im imbibe yourself with his power or something, right, by eating it. But it seemed awfully primitive and shamanistic. You know, when like uh, Native Americans would, would kill or, or tribal people would kill and they'd eat the heart of the kill to gain their spiritual power. That's kind of what I thought it was as a kid and a teenager. But that still doesn't make a whole lot of sense because we didn't kill Christ. And, and uh, <laughs> uh, you know, we, we can't really gain of his power unless we repent. So, it, uh, you know, in, in Mormon theology, they have this little prayer, the little blessing, you know, we do this in the yeah. remembrance of him and blah, blah, blah. And so it's kind of a covenant. But, but why? Why are we eating of his flesh? Why are we drinking of his blood? Can't we just look at a picture of him? Well, actually, you are hitting on some great points there. Now, you pointed out that this was very much earlier than Judeo-Christianity, and you're absolutely correct. The Osiris myth actually comes, one of the earliest, in the fourth dynasty of Egypt. So, I mean, we're talking thousands and thousands of years ago. Also, you pointed out that it doesn't make any sense to have this cannibalistic nature within Christianity. But I'd like to read you something from the pyramid text of Pepe II. And hey, that's, the, he, that's the guy who was really old, right? Yes, it is. He was the oldest known ruler. <laughs> he ruled for like he ruled for like ninety six years. Yeah, he was an old ruler. <laughs> and uh sadly enough, he's one of the ones blamed for uh, one of the intermediate periods in Egypt due to his long rule. <laughs> right, because he lasted so long, he, he kind of couldn't take the troops out himself anymore, and things kind of fell apart in the last 20 or 30 years of his reign. Exactly. But anyway, this is coming directly from his pyramid text. Seizeth though, or excuse me, seizeth those who are follower of Set. 
He breaketh their heads, he cutteth off their haunches, he teareth out their intestines, he diggeth out their hearts, he drinketh copiously of their blood. Now, although crude, this was a core concept. The conviction that one could receive immortality by eating the flesh and blood of a god who had died becoming, or excuse me, who had died became a dominating obsession in the ancient world. So, I mean, this is something that's been around for, I mean, thousands of years. The idea that if you ate something from somebody else, you ate them, you took their power inside of you. Oh, sure. I mean, you, it's, it's pretty intuitive how that works. You slay them and you eat them and you, you, you take all that power. Uh, and I think that's a fairly common within uh, tribal societies, very common uh, belief. You know, just like, in this instance, just like... Uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh and Utnapishtim, you can tell which direction the plagiarism went because in one direction it makes complete sense. In the other direction, it doesn't. If uh, Egyptians were somehow plagiarizing from Christianity, even though it didn't exist, uh, why would they take a god who is not uh, uh, of um, <laughs> grain and, and uh, you know, doesn't make beer in bread why would they then take that and, and make it up, right? But you can see it flowing from one because at, in one point it has a lot more information and it loses something in the translation. In the other way, it's just completely incomprehensible. You can see how the Christians say, you know, this is pretty neat. I like this ritual where they're actually eating uh, the flesh of the God and drinking his blood. Uh, so let's co-opt this. But we're going to, you know, he's not the God of wheat or grain. Um, we'll just kind of drop that stuff. And somehow it loses all meaning. You know, when I heard that for the first time about the Egyptian sacrament, everything clicked and made sense. Aha! That's why. It just doesn't yeah. in Christian theology. There's no theology really to back that up. And you're exactly right. It, it did the same exact thing with, with me. As soon as I heard of this ancient god and hearing exactly what it all meant with, with this god who actually had a sacrament, it, it just made perfect sense to me. It just kind of clicked in my head that, oh, now I understand where the sacrament comes from, because in Christianity, it never really makes that much sense. Yeah. What else you got? All right, well, we'll continue down with the sacrament. Now, there's something else taken from, uh, from Plutarch, and uh, I'll read it to you, and then I'll read from St. John again. That was Plutarch, Although, the Italian. I'm going to beat your ass. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Plutarch the Babylonian. Go ahead. Plut no, no, no. He was German. Come on now. He was a big guy. <laughs> All right. Although they were ethical and ceremonial considerations, none of these could compare to the power of the divine Eucharist, since it was literally believed to be the body, bread, and blood ale of the God. Since the ancient Nilotics believed that humans were... Whatever they eat, this sacrament was, by extension, able to make them celestial and immortal. Now take that, and I want to read uh, John 6, verse 33 through 35. For the bread of God is which cometh down from heaven, and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. So, I mean, you're, you're getting the same exact thing here, where if you eat of the flesh of Christ, the blood and uh, the body, you will become celestial and immortal yourself. That's very interesting, because the uh, Christian intellectuals 
in the first century were um, intellectual because they were educated. And the only education in the first century wasn't Christian education. It was pagan education. And there were a number of these mystery cults. The most common uh, were, I believe, Dionysus uh, in Greek um, and Alexandria. Uh, and it was about a resurrecting god-man who, I believe, uh, was uh, killed for the sins of the world and, and was resurrected on the third day. Interestingly enough, um, I think Mithras was another, Mithraism was another mystery cult. Uh, and uh, he was actually born on December 25th in a cave and visited by three shepherds, um, which isn't that impressive in, unless you remember that uh, there was a strong current of this uh, idea of being born in a cave, that Jesus was born in a cave, in the Gnostic Gospels and some of the other texts that didn't make it into the New Testament. Very, very common thing to write about in the first and second centuries. So the, it's very, very close. And these Greek mystery religions had these kind of outside texts that uh, meant one thing, but if you knew the... Um, the knowledge that was was the inner knowledge. You had been initiated into the mysteries. You could see where each of these points of the outside text uh, matched up with the, the greater wisdom and the greater knowledge. Um, and I believe Gnosticism is, is a type of mystery religion uh, that was formed from all these kind of various pagan things uh, and uh, had outer and inner mysteries. Uh, it was kind of like a fusion between the mystery religions and Christianity. Yeah, well, I mean, in the Hellenic period, that was when the Greeks really became aware of Osiris, and that's where a lot of these myths kind of grew, and uh, where they merged with uh, such philosophies as Platonism, and uh, it was really, especially the resurrection, that really drew the Greeks to this, and in my personal opinion, I really think that's where the Christian resurrection of Jesus Christ actually came from, is these pagan precursors that were building up to this point. Entirely possible, and it certainly predates the Christian resurrection. You know, the, the, the Osiris by several millennia, I believe, and Dionysus by several centuries. Uh, and actually they were so, con you know, clearly the Greeks, um, as they often did, got this stuff from the Egyptians. And so, you know, the, the Persian mystery religions, the, the Assyrian, the Babylonian, you know, they, all these cultures had kind of their own mystery religions, uh, and it all kind of comes from Egypt, which uh, almost everything did. Because Egypt was such a fascinating civilization. Um, well, not only that, but we discussed uh, last week about how Rome actually took their religion from Greece. So basically you have this clear line of Egypt to Greece, Greece to Rome, and there's Jesus sitting right in the middle. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's the, They had every uh, every certain number of years they would have uh, the initiation at Eleusis, um, and they'd take you through and they'd tell you this story and they'd, you'd get initiated into it. And a lot of the ancient Greeks marked that as a turning point in their lives, uh, this, this mystery religion and you know, who knows if there were some gases involved or anything like that, but uh, amazingly enough, um, even philosophers uh, would say that, you know, this was, you know, I felt so grateful to the gods and goddesses because this, this changed my life. All right, well, one thing I'd like to move on before we move completely out of uh, Egypt and how it affected things is my own personal theory. Now, I've talked to Charlie about this theory, and uh, it is a little bit off the cuff, but it makes sense if you think about it in the, in the idea of where Egypt is concerned. 
Now, what my theory is, is the Garden of Eden. Now, uh, everybody knows about the Garden of Eden being this, this perfect place where everything is provided for them, so on and so forth, and it, it comes down to they are bad and Adam and Eve are tossed out of the Garden of Eden. Well, when I was studying a lot of Egypt history, a lot of it actually coincided with the, uh, the Garden of Eden. I mean, one of the reasons why Egypt never went out and became an empire is because nobody wanted to leave Egypt. The idea that if you died away from Egypt, you wouldn't be able to be resurrected. And so it was the absolute worst thing to do to, to be exiled from Egypt because it was just so perfect. Everything was provided for you. I mean, I've spoken with a, a couple of anthropologists who just kind of laughed and always pointed out that Egypt is lazy because everything was kind of handed to them. I mean, their entire culture was given to them by the Nile. And so it's just very interesting to me that you have this similarity of a society that never wants to leave this particular area that this is the perfect area they get everything from the gods in this area they were even resurrected in this area uh, but to leave it you lose all of those uh, I guess great points of this land and then you have which Charlie and I back in the discussion of the Exodus you have this group of Jews who come into this land and they get this sense of this and when they leave the the development of the Adam and Eve story it, it just it seems to me that there's a lot of similarities there. Yeah, except that in Mormonism, um, we all know that the Garden of Eden was in Missouri, not Egypt. Oh, that makes perfect sense. I, I, I guess it's a good thing you aren't able to get that particular portion of Mormonism off your brain. <laughs> <laughs> That's where um, uh, Jesus is going to make his first appearance, I think, isn't it? Adam on Diamond in Missouri, right before the, um, uh, what is it, the... Uh, Second uh, the coming, judgment. Yeah, the yeah. second coming, the judgment where you and I are going to burst into flames because we don't pay our tithing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Why does that God need my tithing sense. anyway? Why can't they just invest all the tithing they already have? Well, because uh, we already have a history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints being horrible with money and nearly going bankrupt. <laughs> but <laughs> can't God just tell them what to invest in? Well, doesn't it work I, that I way? Or it's like psychics, you can't you can't do psychic stuff for personal gain or else you lose your power. Wasn't there some sort of psychic uh, telemarketer who went bankrupt? I she, guess she got uh she got sued by the government. <laughs> <laughs> it was that Madam Chloe or something like that. Yeah. And the joke but she was that, come. <laughs> that was the joke. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, if you've got the ear of God, shouldn't you be able to do some sort of investment? You should. Uh, Joseph Smith got into a lot of trouble for starting the Kirtland Bank, remember, that um, uh, took in a lot of Mormons. And uh, because, of course, you know, how could it go wrong? It's the profit. And that, that ended up going bankrupt, and all those notes were worthless. But uh, that was just a trial, you know. That was God trying to test the saints. Well, you know, uh, I mean... It was like, uh, as we were reading uh, in the Flood story last week, God killed everybody, and then he kind of felt bad about it, because then he realized, oh, wait, this is just the nature of man. <laughs> Maybe God wasn't paying attention to the stock market or 
you know, bank <laughs> prices, or I don't know what went wrong. Well, obviously, it's God is in America, and he wasn't paying attention to the foreign news. So he was that's trying to. Did I tell you about that Jehovah's Witness pamphlet that I got when I was in college? No, you didn't. Uh, it was proof positive that Jesus existed because, as we all know, uh, like charges repel and opposite charges attract. But in the center of a um, oh god, <laughs> the center of a nucleus, um, you have protons and neutrons. Well, protons are all positively charged; they should repel each other. And it's only the power of Christ that holds. I mean, they had this whole thing. It was like an illustrated pamphlet. Uh, they would all the protons would fly apart if it weren't for the power of Christ. So I can see how he'd be busy holding all, together all of the protons inside every nucleus of every atom in the entire universe. Sometimes he's got to drop the ball, you know. Sadly, I think you've already brought that up in one of these. As soon as you talked about the positive and negative charges, I knew exactly what was yeah. coming. Ridiculous. All right, what else you got? Well, actually, it's something that you brought to my attention, and uh, it's it's not very well known, but uh, it's Didymus Thomas Jude, or Judas. And uh, if you'd like, why don't you go ahead and head this one? This is interesting because um, I was thinking a while back about, uh, you know, you take the, the mainstream Christian idea that what happened was uh, Jesus got arrested in Jerusalem at the end of his, you know, one or three year ministry, depending on which gospel you read. And he was crucified, and this is a dark time for the apostles, but we all know that within about 15 or 20 years, there were Christian communities um, all over, you know. Uh, we have letters from Paul dating from the 50s, um, so we have independent evidence of that. So they'll say the only way that could have happened is if Jesus was resurrected, they did tell the truth, and he made post-death appearances. I, You know, I, if you read Dawkins' book, he gives this idea that there's this, you know, cargo cult, and uh, it has this massive uh, ship that's coming in, and it, you can trace this stuff back, it was in like the 19-teens, and so there was this little prophecy that a ghost cargo ship had come back, and, uh, you know, would arrive and, and, and do all this stuff. So within about 20 years... The um, cargo ship story evolved from a future event to a past event. So instead of saying this is going to happen in the future, it is now somehow evolved right underneath their eyes uh, that uh, it had um, already happened, and they were looking backwards toward it. So that's that's a plausible theory. Is about you know what happened with Jesus that um, these guys are looking forward to it initially that he would be resurrected and somehow. In about ten or twenty years, it came that he was already resurrected. Um, no, that that makes perfect sense because I mean the gospels themselves weren't even written down until forty to seventy years afterward. The fact, right, right. Um, uh, another explanation, which is um, less plausible but but still interesting, um, is that Jesus had a twin, uh, and that um, it, it certainly could have been that when Jesus was crucified, his twin brother made post-resurrection appearances. So the question is, is there any evidence for this? And actually, um, up until we found those Gnostic uh, Gospels at Nagamadi, um, Nog yeah. uh, we didn't have any evidence for it, but it was very, very ancient. Uh, and, and actually, there, there are echoes of this in the Old Testament, or the New Testament. Um, Thomas actually is Hebrew for twin. And there but was... It comes from the Aramaic word Toma. Right, for twin. 
And actually, um, if you've ever heard Didymus Judas Thomas, Didymus is the Greek word for twin. I think his name was, it wasn't Thomas, it was Jude, I think. Jude. Jude or Judah, Judas, something like that. So that's his real name. So you have twin, twin, Jude. Uh, And early on, you know, so you know that he's a twin. Early on, you have this idea that that he was Jesus' twin. And, And there's... Um, evidence for this in old myths as well, because you have, uh, you know, twins of gods, you know, one, like Zeus mates with someone and you get Hercules and, and like a human, a mortal twin, (laughs) one with all the power and one, one that's just mortal. Um, there are actually gospels that, that, that state right in there, uh, the gospel of Thomas, when he goes over to India, um, there are certain uh, themes that come up that only happens when he's uh, uh, because he looks exactly like Jesus. You know, he leaves a room, Jesus comes in. They think that he's the same guy. He tells him a bunch of stuff, comes back out. You know, when Jesus is gone, and uh, you know that they, they they're totally it's like a sitcom. Uh, be interesting seeing this acted out in a play. But the idea was that he looked exactly like um, Jesus. Now, of course, this was suppressed by the church because. Jesus was begotten by God, <laughs> the Holy Ghost. So how can you have a twin? <laughs> uh, you're absolutely right. It, it just seems like a really bad '80s sitcom. It's it's like that. What was that one with Balky that your wife likes so much? Perfect Strangers. I would say yeah, Perfect Strangers or Three's Company, one of the two. Yeah, th- th- it sounds like just a bad sitcom from Perfect Strangers or Three's Company. Yeah. Uh, and the, you know, if this was true, and you have kind of an ancient thread telling you that Jesus had a twin, you could kind of see how um, he gets crucified, and then you have a post-resurrection appearance by someone who looks exactly like Jesus. How how you'd get um, the idea that he was resurrected, especially in ancient times where news traveled very slowly. Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at Didymus, Didymus was actually used three times in John. John eleven sixteen, John twenty twenty four, and John twenty one two. So I mean, in the Gospel of John, uh, I mean he's trying to make it completely evident that this is a twin. And uh, I mean, it just—it's very fascinating to me because it was actually the book of Thomas the Contender in the Nag Hammadi Library, and uh, this is an exact quote: "It is said to be Jesus himself." Now, since it has been said that you are my twin and true companion, examine yourself. So, I mean, you have Jesus himself turning to Didymus Thomas Jude and saying, Hey, you're my twin, you're my true companion, examine yourself. And that, to me, sounds exactly like uh, Jesus turning around to his twin brother and saying, You know what, brother, you've doubted me this entire time. You've doubted that I am the Son of God. So, since you are of my same flesh, it's time for you to start examining yourself and examine why you're doubting so much. Right. Um, and you can see this stuff throughout. And, and if actually by the time you end up writing the Gospels, um, what better person to have doubt Jesus than his own twin brother? Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's, um, that theory is kind of out there. I tried to do a little more research into the whole thing, but there's really not much that survived as far as the, the twin legend. It's, it's definitely out there. It's definitely a thread in, in ancient writings. Um, but there just isn't that much out there to, to write a, even a chapter on, really. Uh, which is too bad. I mean, I'd love to find another Nag Hammadi library so we can continue forward with this type of discussion. But until more is discovered, there's not much to go on except for the fact of these little clues following through. Yeah. 
what else you got? All right, now throughout all of this, we've been we've been discussing that uh, that Jesus held pagan precursors, not only in the fact that uh, he stole from Osiris the idea of eating of the bread and of the beer or wine, and it being the flesh and the blood. Now, Charlie, have you ever heard of ZombieJesus.com? No. <laughs> I can understand it's, what Zombie Jesus is, but I didn't know there was a website about it. Yeah, yeah. There, I mean, it's this great website, and I found it today while I was doing some research. And just on the index page, it has written out in blood text, Zombie Jesus, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And it says, Zombie Jesus Day, April 12, 2009. And it's just, it's just this great little website that has just these quotes, and he's even got a Facebook page. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, it, it's, it's just it's funny to me that, uh, that others out there would go this far to put somebody down, and I, I don't think we at Irreligiosophy would ever, ever mock somebody in this way. I, I wouldn't condone, you know, religious is a, religion is a very serious matter. Um I wouldn't condone any sort of mockery whatsoever into people's deeply held beliefs. How could of you course. do such a thing? I know uh, this person who wrote Zombie Jesus, although I would really like them to come on the show, <laughs> obviously we must uh, really put them down for what they did. <laughs> yeah, that brings up an interesting um Interesting point, because one of the points of the New Atheist is that uh, religion should not be held in automatic regard. Um, there really isn't anything about religion that uh, should privilege it in our society such that we can't discuss it or mock it or tear it down or um, set it up on a pedestal in any way. I mean, honestly, if you look at it, as Christopher Hitchens said, you know, here's this rabbi sitting across from him, um, and the only reason he would ever accept the mutilation of the genitals of a child as in circumcision is because of religion because his you know 3000 year old book tells him to yeah. otherwise there'd be no possible way shape or form that this otherwise moral person would do it and that's kind of what religion does it gets you to buy into a certain package of beliefs uh, and once you accept those you accept the really wild ridiculous stuff that's just part of the package and it doesn't bother you. you know, can you imagine if Christianity didn't exist, someone coming to you today out of the blue and telling you, hey, I got this story about this guy who was um, executed uh, for um, treason, basically, uh, in the electric chair. And, uh, you know, he, he floated around a bit. He healed a bunch of sick people. Um, he walked on water, calmed some storms, turned some water into wine. It's amazing, you know. It's like he's a, a really good magician. But, um, he, you know, he ran into the government, had some problems, got uh, electrocuted, and crawled out of his grave on the third day. Um, and now he's here to, for your sins. That's actually why he got electrocuted in the first place. You know, he suffered all of your sins uh, for him and put him on his back. And, and now uh, you can take part in that if you just believe in this guy. His name's Joe. Sounds like a bad Stephen King movie such as The Green Mile. <laughs> It's a ludicrous, ludicrous story. There's absolutely no evidence for it whatsoever. Uh, but somehow we're supposed to respect this enough not to mock it? Why? I think, what, 
I think the reason why so many people hold off from mocking religion is if they had the same type of reaction that I always had as a child, where I would make some derogatory comment or just, you know, some sort of snide comment about religion, and one of my parents would always turn around and look at me and say, whoa, no, that's getting close to blasphemy. And blasphemy in a lot of... Uh, the new religions that have come out is one of the greatest sins because you cannot mock God. He will strike you down if you mock God. It's so ridiculous. If I want to blaspheme, then let God take care of it. Uh, we're not in ancient cultures where they think that, you know, if this guy's blaspheming over down the street, then God's going to cause an earthquake to, to wipe us all out, right? I think we've progressed a little more than that. We have this uh, idea of God no, that we he's... Haven't. he's <laughs> God's very, very powerful. If, if he's mad at me, he can send a single bolt of lightning. He can make me spontaneously combust. He can give me syphilis. Uh, you know, anything. Um, no, why? You obviously haven't been listening to the Atheist News Network. We are not beyond that. I mean, take a look at that Colorado guy who was saying HIV is a punishment for prom promiscuity. Or this Senator Butterer's retard who is sitting there saying that gays are the biggest threat of the world because God is going to destroy the world because gays have spread everywhere. Yeah, so obviously you're right. we you're haven't right. moved beyond this. Chris Butters is afraid that since uh, gays are now global, that God will send a global Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, you're right. I mean, in deeply religious people, I think that that's their first thought when a tragedy happens. You know, they, they um, jump to this... Uh, theodicy, uh, because there's evil clearly in the world. They jump to this theodicy. Well, well, there's th this evil that you say is so evil is actually a punishment from God, and I'm going to try to whip up my church membership by saying that the terrorist uh, slammed into 9/11 because we've been so tolerant of gays. And if we just intolerant, if we just make it uh, so that we hate gays and and uh, we, we're less tolerant of them, and, and we um, don't want to give them rights, then God will bless us instead of punishing us. Uh, there's zero correlation between the two, right? Why this time in history? Um, why September 11th? Why did he choose Muslim terrorists that have a history of hating the United States for reasons completely different than uh, our tolerance for case? <laughs> I mean, the only way you're going to derive this idea is if you have this preconceived hatred or fear of gays, uh, and you want to just bring it to the fore. There's, there's no, other than that, there's no correlation between the two. Well, I mean, you don't even have to look at terrorism. Let look me say at that, New Orleans. Let me say that I mean, we should have progressed beyond this idea. Because Christians ah. were uh, uh, the victims of this before they had power in the first several centuries after Christ. Before they had power, Christians were called atheists. Uh, they uh, were, their tracts were written against them, um, saying, blaming them for all kinds of problems you know if the, Justin the martyr <laughs> uh, railed against it in one of his books he said that you know it's really tough being a Christian because every time a flood happens or an earthquake or some sort of natural disaster a fire uh, you know it's persecute the Christians blame the Christians why because they're atheists they don't believe in the gods they've angered the gods and therefore a flood happens uh, you think you, Christians? You just in reminded me. Hold on, hold on. You just remind. Who was who was the Roman that burned down his entire city because he wanted to change it how it looked, and then he blamed the Christians? Nero. I think that's Nero, according to Tacitus. Um, <laughs> nobody liked the Christians. <laughs> there were this new cult, and and in ancient times, if it was new, uh, it was necessarily bad, right? There are no new good ideas. 
the only ideas that have stood the test of time. And that's why the Christians wanted to co-opt the Old Testament. <laughs> where Look, we've been around forever, right? <laughs> this is an old idea. We're, we're with the Jews over here. Um, but yeah, so they were kind of scapegoated, according to Tacitus, I believe, uh, for the, the fire in 49, was it, in Rome? Yeah. And Tacitus yeah. thought that Nero wanted to, uh, he had all these public works he wanted to do, but he had to clear out a bunch of uh, Roman buildings first and so he set fire to it i don't know how plausible that is but it is found in tacitus and it's still pretty funny and and the idea in and of itself is plausible because i mean everybody blamed the christians back then nobody liked them and nero was insane i mean clearly the guy was just insane well i mean then then you if you take a look at it the christians did the same thing i mean uh, look at the greek religions they went over there and they pretty much destroyed any paganistic thing that they saw as uh, as going against Christianity. Right. You'd think the Christians would be more sensitive about this stuff, but they, you know, how short their memories are. Once you get in power, you know, they wrote these impassioned defenses about freedom of religion right up until they got state power behind them, and then whoosh, there goes paganism. Crushed. Yeah. Temples burned. Raised to the ground. A library of Alexandria burned. Uh, get rid of the scrolls. If it's not... Um, if it's of God, we already have it. If it's not of God, we don't need it. Burn it all. Um, horrible, oh God, horrible, I horrible. Thinking. Uh, I hate the idea of burning any sort of book. And, uh, you know, oddly enough, this kind of reminds me of my brother. Now, I was up there visiting them during, uh, during Christmas, and he was having his children watch this show. Now, I'm sure everybody out there has at least seen this show or knows of it because it is absolutely horrible in what it shows to young children. Now, uh, what was the show? Uh, damn it, I forgot the name of it. What was the show with the little superheroes that ran around, the, the little family that had to hide because they were supers? Uh, what are you talking about? Uh, that little cartoon, you know, uh, the animation, um, the fat super who finally started working out. The uh, Incredibles. The Incredibles, yes. Yeah, I thought you were talking well, about, was... like, Powerpuff Girls or something like that. Oh, come on now, Powerpuff Girls rock. I would never talk bad about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 but seriously, I was up at my brother's place, and he w had actually gone through and chopped up sections of the Incredibles and taken them out because he didn't want his children to see that brothers and sisters would fight. And he even cut out sections that showed affection between the wife and the husband where she pinched his butt and things like that. And I actually got into an argument with my brother telling him that by shielding his children, he was really doing them a disservice by, you know, stopping them from being prepared from the real world and he was completely against it and I pointed out that what he was doing is was as bad as the Nazis burning books and my brother actually stated to me that some of the ideas where the Nazis were concerned were good ideas as in pretty much hiding these things that do not agree with your personal core beliefs. Well, I remember when and, we, we talked about that um the mantle is far, far greater than the intellect article. Oh, God. I'm sure that's exactly where he's getting it from, right? Some things are true, but not useful. Uh, so we should just kind of push those by the wayside. And I say, uh, go screw yourself. Um, yeah. I can understand you censoring things. We all censor things for, for our kids. But for God's sakes, there's got to be a line. Um, 
heaven forbid that your children see two adults being affectionate toward each other so they can actually kind of prepare themselves for when they get to that stage. Heaven forbid they see anybody fighting um, so that they uh, have any sort of idea once they get into kindergarten, unless he's going to homeschool them the entire time. That, you know, I'm sometimes sure that is a valid idea where he's concerned. Sometimes children tease each other or 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 are actually mean to each other, they actually call them names, you know? Your same brother, uh, we were babysitting their kids, and we ran through a bunch of different cartoons, um, each Disney of which... cartoons, mind you. Each of which was inappropriate. I mean, they're all G-rated cartoons. They're shown on TV, uh, each of which is completely inappropriate for their children. Um, the Halloween episode of Charlie Brown, I thought, you know, how could this possibly be unacceptable? No, they make Charlie Brown feel bad because they give him rocks when he's uh, trick-or-treating instead of candy. And I don't want to expose my children to that. Are you insane? Are you absolutely insane? You think children are so stupid that they can't figure out that this is a joke? They can't. Oh, my God. I'm going to I'm going to shatter this poor, fragile child. You know, children have been uh, subjected to, you know, being bombed in World War Two in London, uh, in, in Germany all kinds of horrors, right? And most of them come out of that just fine. We're talking yeah. about giving a child rocks for Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> and this is completely going to destroy their children. Well, we've, we've uh, gone uh, way off topic. Uh, do you want to bring it back to paganism for a final thought? <laughs> I'm, I'm so off topic right now. I'm still staring at zombie Jesus, and that's about as close as I can get to paganistic ideas. <laughs> I really, I mean, I, really regret that uh, that we have lost all that uh, material in the Library of Alexandria, and, and I, I deeply regret losing a lot of the material that's irreplaceable uh, because of our uh, incursion into Iraq in 2003. They looted not only the Iraqi Museum, which holds some of the oldest artifacts um, that, that in history, uh, but it also uh, they looted the sites that we were, were being dug, and that's a loss to scholarship that we will never get back because those things were being, uh, you know, um, academically, you know, they're laid out on grids and, and they had all these cuneiform tablets so they're carefully uh, uh, brushing away and we've lost all of that. You cannot now go back and reinsert it in the ground. All of that stuff is lost, likely forever. And, and I don't know if people really understand how important it is to keep this grid system because this is the way it was found and just the position of it may in and of itself tell us something that's mind-bogglingly true and right. something that we haven't been able to figure out yet right. just by the position. You'll get one chance at that and one chance only, and that is now lost forever. Um, extremely disappointing, extremely disappointing. Um, and the fact that we uh, you know, had very close to a steam engine uh, in the first century of the Common Era um, yeah, the Greeks. They had automated machines where they had these plays that were, uh, you know, all based on uh, pegs and, and spinning wheels and weights and sand falling down. Uh, and this is all Greeks. Um, the fact that we had all that and then Christianity occurred and we had, what, about a thousand years of uh, Dark ages. suppression and, and, and uh, uh, suppressed beliefs and and fighting and, and, and no scientific uh, progress whatsoever until the Enlightenment when we finally said, let's throw off authority. Let's find this stuff out for ourselves, right? Just like the Greeks did. 
Um, let's even throw off the authority of Aristotle and Plato and, and let's look at this stuff ourselves and let's do some experiments. The fact that we were pushed behind about 1,500 years, uh, at least 1,000, um, to me is absolutely horrifying and it's one of the worst legacies of Christianity ever. I mean, it's one of the worst legacies of religion in and of itself because a lot of religion is you believe this, do not question, it is for the gods to know, and so it stops you from questioning. Right. The idea is to question everything, to search it out, and to figure it out. And that is the and, crux of why, first of all, the, the difference between pa pagan religion and, and Christian religion. With polytheism, you're very open, you can always accept one more god. With monotheism, yeah. every other god is a threat to you, and that is why I disagree with Stephen Jay Gould, who said that you know, these are in non-overlapping magisteria. Uh, religion tells us, you know, how to be nice to each other. And, you know, I'm not sure religion has much to offer at all. But, you know, science tells us how the world works. I disagree. Science, the, the, the existence of science, the very, the very existence, the fact that it is there, the fact that its ideas question everything and, and that nothing is sacred is a direct threat to literalistic religion everywhere. Oh, I'll agree with you entirely on that. That's probably a good place to end this podcast, and uh, we'll see you again next week. Have a good one, folks.